A joint session of Congress packs the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives. The legislators wait in anticipation of the President's annual State of the Union Address. Then on cue, the Sergeant-at-Arms opens the doors of the chambers and announces, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And what happens next? All sorts of cheering and clapping, and you also hear shouts over top the cheering. Uh, People expressing, I don't know what they're expressing, but they say things. You can hear them yelling, maybe something like England's long live the king, which we of course wouldn't try in that spot. But let's, let's change the scene, and in a week from today, if all goes as planned in this fallen world, 80,000 fans will pack Lucille Stadium in Qatar for <clears throat> the final match of the World Cup. And imagine if that game comes right down to the last minute and it's still tied. No one has scored. But one of the teams breaks through and a goal is scored in the last minute. Imagine the eruption, the thunderous rejoicing of jubilant fans that will shake the stadium and be heard for miles around. Shift the scene again. A sold-out concert of a pop band whose adoring fans scream in ecstasy and sing at full throat. What common thread do we find in these three scenes? How do we read it? How do we look at it when we see this world? Each reflects, I believe, a deep longing in the soul of mankind. A longing to celebrate greatness. A passion for jubilation. A deep desire to exult in something that's bigger than ourselves. Coming together with others to celebrate. But sadly, you know, it's always true in this fallen world is that in in many scenarios like these, and these three, there's always the losing side or the disinterested side. At the State of the Union, one party shouts jubilantly as the president enters into the chambers and the other party fakes it. They're really not so happy. One football team screams ecstatically in triumph. And then the cameras, don't they always pan to the losing team? Their heads bowed in deep disappointment and disbelief. Concert goers revel in near ecstasy that their great musicians are here and outside the stadium are cars passing by that hate that band or have no interest in it. There has been only one time in the history of the universe that the celebration has been universal. One time when the jubilation was expressed in songs of mesmerizing beauty. One time when the shouts of holy acclamation were pure. And it wasn't the coming of Christ, was it? The angels lit up the night sky with brilliant light and with songs of joy. We could, if we could only be there and hear how they sang. But most of the world went on about its business and did not even notice. One time, it was universal. We find that time expressed in the book of Job, where God, speaking to Job as Creator, says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
Job wasn't there and neither was anyone else. No human being was in that spot at that moment. That moment when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That was the moment. In this context, the sons of God are not human beings, but are angelic creatures. Possibly the stars also are angelic creatures. But immediately after creation, the angels lifted their voices in united jubilation that filled the universe. They filled that creation with songs of awe-struck ecstasy, celebrating God's creative power, wisdom, His exquisite artistry, and majestic glory. And since that concert in song, since those shouts of rejoicing wonder, the world has never matched it, but we keep reflecting it. Compared to the cacophonous sound of that angelic choir on that moment of creation, the roar of fans in a packed out NFL stadium today will sound like hoarse whispers by comparison. Indeed, the songs that we sing to the Lord must sound to the ears of those angels like maestros of a symphony orchestra hearing a kindergarten recital on kazoos. But the key for us is this, as God's people, it's not the quality or the volume of our voices, but the fact that we worship the same God as the angels in glory. In fact, it is our high calling as God's people to sing in anticipation of that future day when the worship of the redeemed from all ages joins the angelic choirs, joins them at Christ's throne singing songs like we cannot imagine, louder, more beautiful, and more glorious than anything that we can comprehend. But until then, here in our grimy, broken world, Psalm 100 calls us to praise the Lord with pure and fervent hearts of worship and devotion. We noted last week that Psalms 93 to 99 are structured together, it seems. They seem to be grouped thematically around the theme that God is the King of the universe. Psalm 99 begins with that statement, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. The Lord reigns. And with those Psalms, 93-99, to we come now to Psalm 100 and a fitting response to this glorious truth about who our God is, is this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. We find here a call to corporate worship in these first two verses. They reflect very similar uh, parallel Psalm 
95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Closing out this theme, let's make a joyful noise to the Lord, the psalmist proclaims. We're called here in that making that joyful noise to raise our voices in loud, jubilant song and even shouts of joy. To do this before the King of Kings is pure mercy. You really, by every right, every right, we should enter the King's presence in trembling fear. We should come with fallen face and drooping shoulders weighed down by the guilt of our sin. But God bids us rejoice in His presence. This is not because we deserve it. It's not because we come as sinless. It's because we come on the invitation of the King of kings and Lord of lords to come rejoicing in His presence. And on this side of the cross... We are so called due to the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf who has clothed us with the robes of His righteousness. And so He says, come with jubilant voice and proclaim the glories of the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. And notice here in verse 1, it is all the earth that is called to this response. Sometimes as Christians we miss this. Unbelievers are not free to ignore and dismiss God. They are not free to to find any God that they wish. They are responsible to see Him as the ultimate act of worship. The fact that they do not does not diminish the glory of God. He's not wringing his hands and pleading with them to help him out with their worship. He's saying, I'm King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are to worship him that way. God's goodness and blessing are witnessed on every square inch of this universe. Therefore, everyone, by all rights, should praise the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. The fact that so many people do not witness this joy, that do not proclaim this worship is because there's a rebellion against our Maker. And people can scream in ecstasy as some musician or some athlete that's made some great play. We can cheer with great enthusiasm uh, in varying settings, but God is ignored. He tells us that every knee will bow to Christ. And those that bow as defeated foes rather than forgiven saints will suffer God's eternal wrath in hellfire. Those are the stakes of worshiping the Lord. Isaac Watts said, Come we that love the Lord in that great hymn. He said, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly King, speak Your joys abroad. The call to praise continues here in verse 2 to serve the Lord with gladness. The Hebrew word is is essentially equivalent to worship in the Old Testament. To serve and to worship is just seen as one thing. It speaks of orienting one's life to the worship of the Lord. It's from this Hebrew word, the concept comes of our Sunday morning service. 
our Sunday evening service, our Wednesday night service. Now, it's true that it's a, something that's provided as a service to God's people, but that's a secondary concept. The idea is rather that it is a service of gathering for worship. Service is worship. And so we gather for worship. And that's the, the word that's used here, service. And we notice that it's with gladness and that it is with singing that we are called to come. To honor these commands, we must tend to our hearts. We must order our emotions and our affections as we gather in service, as we gather in the worship of the Lord. I know this is tough to keep straight as we gather on the Lord's day. But we must consciously recognize that we gather as the redeemed people of God. We come into the assembly as those that Christ has purchased with His blood. We gather as God's people in His presence for the praise of His name. Because that name is our greatest delight and joy. This means that we must steward our hearts and concentrate our minds to come to worship ready to rejoice with gladness as we sing songs of joy. How often do we come with burdens of the day? Burdens of our lives. The difficulties, the challenges, the things that we're going to do, what is exciting to us that's outside of the assembly. May God aid us to recognize, I gather as a redeemed child of God to rejoice in His presence. Now there are times for all of us when we do not feel well. When we have suffered a great loss or disappointment. When our souls are cold as we come to worship. At such times we need to lean on others in the assembly to represent us. To come as the, the needy and the downtrodden, resting in the strengths of others, hearing their songs as they minister to us. But that said, may God help Eden Baptist Church gather for worship on the Lord's day, ready to exalt in His presence as the people of God. And let those refuse to sing who never knew our King. It means at least that we should sing loudly. It means we should concentrate on what we are singing and with a sense that we are literally singing to the Lord and to one another. It means we should concentrate our realization and that this concentrated realization of what we are doing would kill any notion among us that our singing is some side manner of little significance, a concession to the musical among us, or something like that. When we lift up loud songs of jubilant praise to God, we are exalting His name together. We are, in this little moment in this place, putting the universe right and saying that He is all in all. While there are other ways of doing that besides this, we don't do anything more important in our lives than to gather and praise the Lord, ever. Now the call to praise, we find in verses 1 and 2, is supported next in verse 3 by a confession that commends that praise. 
verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. So it's make a joyful noise, serve the Lord with gladness, come into His presence with singing, knowing that the Lord, He is God. Know that the Lord is God. The idea of know is that, uh, to know Him in this way is that He alone is God. That is, I think, the idea. When, remember the uh, idolatrous Israelites, Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah? What happened when they saw the sacrifice burned up? They said in exclamation, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That's the idea here. Know that He is God. And the idea of know here is is confessional in nature, not merely cerebral. It's not be aware that He is God only. It's not get this right on a test to know that Yahweh is God alone. Rather, it's experiential. Rather than simply intellectual, it is knowing that He alone deserves our praise as the one true and living God. And we notice again that this is a command. And when we obey this command, we will rejoice that He is God. We will sing for joy that He is never weak, never for one moment powerless. We will sing because He is always perfectly just and righteous in His relationship to us. We will sing for joy that He is never unkind, never uncaring, never calloused, never lacking in mercy. We will sing jubilantly that He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, the King of kings and Lord of lords and our Savior. We know Him this way. So one commentator has said wisely on this idea that praise is relentlessly polemical. Praise is relentlessly polemical. That is, as we praise and exalt the name of the Lord, we are arguing that He alone is God. We are expressing His attributes. We are renouncing false gods. We are renouncing all false loyalties. There's nothing more important that we do than to gather in the worship of the Lord and to say that He alone is God. We set the universe right in this little pinprick of a location. Verse 3, know that He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. It is He who has made us. We have not made ourselves. I am His. I've not evolved out of nothing. I was created by God. I did not make myself. He made me. I am His. I'm no orphan soul in the universe either. I'm not seeking my truth. I live to honor His truth and to embrace Him as my own. I am His. On this side of the cross, this means we're united in faith to the person, to the death, to the resurrection, to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in fellowship with God because of His reconciling power. I am His. And hear me. This means I am not the product of of my experiences. Neither what wrongs I have done, nor what wrongs have been committed against me, I am His, recreated in Christ Jesus. 
And when we get this, the song we simply cannot suppress, the desire to sing is, I am His. He has purchased me. He has created me. We are His people, the psalmist says. By sovereign grace, we are chosen by God out of the realm of death, adopted as His children. He gives us a name, a new identity, a vibrant relationship to God through Christ. And there's days it doesn't feel like it. But we know by truth what He has revealed about Himself. This is confession that is at the heart of the call to praise. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. We're a flock under the Lord's care. He leads us. He feeds us. He cares intimately for us in our needs and protects us from the enemies of our souls. Now, this I'll come back to this in a moment, but let's grasp it now. Knowing God is the solid ground on which all true worship depends. Knowing God is the solid ground on which all true worship rests. True worship is always rooted in right doctrine of who God is and how we are called to relate to Him. So that's the first call in the confession commending that call to praise. We then now see a second call to corporate praise in verse 4. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. Just to help us out as Westerners so far removed from these days, the the, uh, red arrows on this picture are the courts uh, and the blue arrows are the gates. So so it is a call to enter through those gates with songs of thanksgiving and prayers of thanksgiving, to enter into those courts with praise. We find it difficult to imagine vast crowds of worshipers singing through the gates of the temple, their voices echoing across the vast courtyards of the Lord's house. By the way, i got to stop here. That's Herod's temple. I'm just helping you with courts and gates because it's just a better picture. It's not Solomon's temple, not what's being talked about here specifically. But those are courts and gates. And this is also Herod's temple, not Solomon's. But you see the gate there. That's what's meant by a gate and entering into the courts of the Lord. And so he's just calling them to be singing and praying and uh, congregating together for the praise of the Lord. We gather in a very different way. But the similarities are the same. It's the gathering together of God's people. And so he rightly and appropriately in their setting calls them to enter the gates. You can just imagine multiplying this picture by thousands and thousands of people as they gathered in, at festivals to worship the Lord. I, I felt like this idea just... I got a little taste of it once. That's when Beth and I were in Jerusalem on a Friday night, which is the start of Sabbath. And we're walking through the streets. And these streets are very narrow streets with buildings, walls up on each side. And as we were walking through a, a marketplace, there came these young men, Jewish men, singing at the top of their lungs as they were walking, heading towards synagogue. And they said, I, I felt it there just for that moment of entering his gates, of descending through the city upon 
the Temple Mount and coming up through those gates into those courtyards, singing these loud songs of praise to the Lord. And I believe verse 4 would anticipate the millennial kingdom and then the new Jerusalem when the nations will gather to worship in the Lord's presence in His temple. And in that final temple, there will come a day when all the earth does indeed sing the Lord's praise in perfect unity. You taste that? Anticipate that? It's not the cars driving by the concert hall that don't care. It's not the defeated team that's moaning while the others rejoice. It's not the winning party and not the losing party or minority party. It's the whole universe. It is everyone, all of the earth, proclaiming the praises of Christ. What a day that will be. The call is there again in verse 4 and in the particular setting that they have. And then verse 5, again, a confession commending praise. You see how this works. It's a call to worship based on the confession of who God is. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. So enter His gates with thanksgiving. Enter His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. As in verse 3, these confessional words give the ground and reason for the call to worship in the psalm. We praise the Lord because He is good. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. He is the source of all that is alive. He is the source of all that is well. And He warns us against all that leads to death and all that leads to corruption. We don't sing to Him because He needs us. We sing to Him because He is good. He is the source of every goodness, everything that is good that we know. Every joy in life, our health, food, family, friendship, pleasure, happiness, the sorrows that lead to growth and strength, all of it comes from Him as the giver of every good gift. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says in 34. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We only know goodness because we know God. And coming to terms with that God-given goodness elicits praise in the redeemed heart. We praise Him because He is steadfast in love for all of time. His steadfast love endures forever. It never ceases. God abundantly pours out His love upon us every second of every day of our lives. Our problem is not that it's not happening. Our problem is that we don't see it. And He's going to do this forever. For this reason, the only logical response is to lift up songs of praise to Him. We praise the Lord third here in verse 5 because He is faithful to all generations. The word means that the Lord is reliable. That's so understated. It doesn't fly, but that's how the word's used. Reliable or dependable or trustworthy. Every false God will burn you. But the Lord of heaven and earth will never leave you, will never forsake you, and will remain forever faithful. Praise His name. 
And so we find these two clarion calls resting upon these confessions of faith in God. These two stanzas exhorting us to raise a joyful, exuberant sound to the Lord, to serve Him with gladness, to approach His presence with singing, to sing songs of thanksgiving and praise, to bless His holy name, and these commands resting on these two confessional sections that rehearse who God is. So we must take away from this psalm the wisdom that true praise is rooted in our confession. Some churches seem nearly to believe that true praise is rooted in a good band. Add light show, throw in a good fog machine, crank up the amperage, and praise will increase. Traversing another trajectory are churches that seem nearly to believe that true worship is fostered by elaborate ritual and religious trappings. Incense, bells, robes, and heavy symbolism are trusted to increase the praise of God's people. But no more is the praise of God increased by the peculiar cultural contours of our worship as a church. We must never forget that true praise is rooted in the heart in heartfelt affections for the true God. The God who has revealed who He is in His written Word, in the incarnate Word, our Lord Jesus Christ. And no praise will ever rise higher than the truth we affirm in that praise. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato said this, Give me the songs of a nation, and it matters not who writes the laws. In other words, the songs of a nation reveal what that culture values, what they believe to be true, or at least what they want to pretend is true. The songs of a nation reveal what they desire. The songs of a people reveal their true heart. And it's the revelation of the law of the heart that matters far more than the law of the land at the end of the day in understanding who people are. So, in light of that, brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord continue to grow in our hearts a desire to sing loud songs of praise to God for who He truly is. To focus our attention upon Him and Him alone. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but those of us who do, not, who do know Him through the salvation that He has granted us, May we be known as a community that sings of the, on the songs of theological depth and accuracy for the glory of God alone. This psalm points us there. Sidney Gradanus put it nicely when he observed almost sarcastically, I quote, There is not much danger of a preacher falling into an anthropocentric interpretation of this psalm. It is all about the Lord. Psalm 100 points us away from ourselves except to say, I am His. That's all that matters in the end. It rivets our attention on the glories of the Creator and Savior. 
So I ask of all of us, are you his child? Have you become a member of his people, a sheep of his flock? Do you have the confidence that you've placed your saving faith in Christ? One way to know that you have not done so is to find no joy that runs deep enough to produce anything like loud, glad songs of jubilant praise to the Lord. You may mumble the words. You may sing to pass the time. You may even find musical interest. But if you're really honest with yourself to say that my very being bursts with joy to lift up the glories of God, if you don't have any sense of what that means, don't fool yourself that you're right with God. That would be a grave mistake. Something is deeply wrong. Remember as we brought this together from weeks before, that there's this wonder for the believer of truly fearing God, understanding who He truly is in all of His righteousness and justice, and that thought of fear translates into glad praise. That's the evidence of Jesus. That's the salvation of the soul. To know that this God who could crush me in His righteousness has saved me by His grace. You get that and you cannot not sing. It has to burst from you. And it will with loud songs. Of praise. I encourage you to seek the Lord. If you say that song's not in my soul, it's not there. I, I might even enjoy tunes, but the message, the confession, it's not there. I would encourage you seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Forsake your sinful ways. Turn in repentant trust in Christ today. There is coming a day when the song will unify the universe again. And you want to be joyfully singing that song with an eternal chorus. Not in a universalist sense, but in a sense that those who reject the Lord will be separated from Him and His people for eternity, and we will sing a song in unison like we've never sung it before. On that glorious day, we will sing songs of depth and beauty that are now unknown. But until then, let us creak and croak and make noises and sing to the best of our ability, knowing that in everything we do in worship, not just singing, but in everything that we do in worship is anticipating that greater day. Until then, let us sing His praises in a synergy of praise and confession.